Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. find the defendants incredibly guilty. this ultimate chicken sandwich on Brio's bun to be guilty of being delicious. Right. What section of the Constitution has been breached? There is no one section. It's just the vibe of the thing. Objection, Your Honor. What? He's leading the witness. The same. You break with both lawyers. Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Opening Arguments, episode 266. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. Out over there is Andrew Torres. How are you doing, Andrew? I am fantastic. I am really excited to uh, get this episode out to folks. We had to we had to push it back a week, yeah. but uh, I think it's still good. Absolutely, it was good stuff. And uh, we're in a I don't know what timeline we're in now. We're in all, we're all <laughs> kinds of confused, but it's it's great stuff. I'm glad we're able to uh, give it to listeners this week. And uh, let's see what else do we any pre-show anything? Or I think we're good. So. Yeah, I mean, what I want to say is um, there is uh, an an advance error <laughs> in this episode, um, and Andrew that is will I, be wrong. Is what you said. I will be wrong. I uh, what I say is, and this is just based on a, a misreading of an alert that I had put on my calendar. I I tell you this this episode breaks down uh, the doctrine of our defense a u e r, and it talks about the Supreme Court's forthcoming decision in the Kaiser case. You're going to hear about that in great detail. What I say is that um, you should be on the lookout for the Supreme Court to deliver its opinions. That's not right. The Supreme Court, this was going to drop on a Tuesday, and then this Tuesday and Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments. First, they heard oral arguments in the partisan gerrymandering cases. That is Rucho versus mm. Common Cause and Lamone versus Benisek. And we talked about that a little bit. And then they had oral arguments in Kaiser, which is the hour deference case. Um, not the opinions. The opinions will come later yeah <laughs> so you you still get a chance to be out in front and you still get to hear about how about everything about our deference but it is because the oral arguments were forthcoming not the opinions so yeah philosophy mind, question if you correct and andrew was wrong before he was wrong was he ever wrong i was never wrong never there wrong. was no no tree yeah. ever fell that is exactly. that is the answer he held it okay so here we go 
Hello and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 264. I'm Thomas Smith Esquire. That over there is uh, Andrew Torres. I'm told has professional some, comedian some experience with the law but yeah how are you doing andrew i am fantastic thomas how are you doing well looking forward to a tuesday deep dive but i always say that and then the news is never good <laughs> it's never it's almost <laughs> never like a yay yay positive good stuff episode but that's okay we gotta know we gotta uh, I'm, I'm looking for positive stories to, to bring us, and I, I promise you all of the positive news that's out there, we're reporting on it. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that the G.I. Joe cartoon? for the cartoon? state of the universe. <laughs> isn't that the G.I. Joe cartoon? This would be a reference I feel like would be a hit with you. It, wasn't there like a knowing is half the battle or something? Wasn't that something? Yeah, knowing is half the battle. That's uh, exactly right. Go. And now you know, and now knowing you know. is half the battle. There you go. Exactly right. So what are we going to know today? Uh, <laughs> we, we've got some, you know, I'm really worried about this. I'm curious to, to hear you break it down because we all cheered for that um, referendum in Florida for giving ex-felons the right to vote. But now I'm a little worried. I They're trying to like overturn this by legislation. Very worried about that. I can't wait to, to hear what you have to say about that. And then we're going to talk about not Chevron deference, but some other kind of deference uh, there are other differences who, who knew so i will defer to you on that but uh, apparently there are <laughs> uh, other differences um but uh, before that i think you've got a uh, brief uh, announcement in the pre-segment right yeah so there are multiple supreme court decisions that are due this week uh the by the best that i can tell based on the supreme court's calendar as you are listening to this episode, the Supreme Court will have ruled in the gerrymandering cases. That is Lemoyne versus Benesek. That's the Maryland case and Rucho versus Common Cause. And um, I am, as you know, from listening to episode 251, I am not optimistic at all uh, that the Supreme Court is going to hand us a decision that is um, anything shy of a disaster. So here's what you want to look for in the news uh, as those cases break. And, and obviously, you know, we will talk about what the decisions actually say. Anything less than a five justice majority that says it is not justiciable to bring a claim for political gerrymandering, right? Anything less than eh, political gerrymandering is just fine is a win. Right. If, mm. if if there's some goofball procedural thing that sends back or whatever, like that, I count that as a win. I think there are five votes right now from the Supreme Court's right wing that says, no, you don't get. Uh, uh, the right to change, you know, to the victor go the spoils. And, you know, while Clarence Thomas uh, has uh, sided with uh, the the rest of the court on uh, racial gerrymandering claims in, in some limited cases, um, he's been very, very clear to say if if you put all the blacks in one particular district because you want to put the Democrats in there, that's fine. If you're doing it because you hate African-Americans, that's not fine. I don't know how you begin to sort of parse that under the law, but, you know, I'm not the one who thinks that Clarence Thomas has an interesting theory of jurisprudence. Yeah, spe um, <laughs> yeah nice. Speaking of, I heard that he spoke for the second time in a decade. Yeah. Was, was yeah. that one of these... Cases? Which one? No, was not in oh, one of these one. cases. Okay. So, 
<laughs> big news, though. Big um, opening arguments big, news. Yep. Yeah, Clarence Thomas asked a question for the second first time in question, several years. Yeah, first yeah. time in three second, years. Second question in a decade, in a decade first yeah. question in three years. Um, you know, I'm thinking about us going back to a once every three years schedule. Um, so you long know, as we, you know. While I'm bitter and uh, unoptimistic here, well, how long is it until we get rulings that they just don't even bother reasoning about? You know, like, is there any law that says they have to even write anything? out? It's going to be just like. Ah, the five evil justices are like, we vote yes on this thing. We don't care about explaining it. Or do they have to explain it? Well, so it, it, I, I don't think we're headed there because you want to, right? You want to take advantage of the fact that everybody who is not a right wing activist actually cares about precedent, right? Mm. Like, so, you know, so you take the opportunity to like, yeah, you take the opportunity to put it in writing, right? Like that's think about the, the discussions that we've had on Colby versus Hogan in the fourth circuit, for example, that takes as a given that DCV Heller is a valid decision. Right. And, and, Look, a lefty Supreme Court, suppose go with the, you know, some combination of impeachment and court packing, right? A a left leaning Supreme Court would would have to take that seriously right. in let's say, you know, twenty twenty two. So you wanna leave a paper trail. This is not this is the opposite of um, you know, sort of what despots do, right? Like okay. you 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 want to bind the other side because they play fair when you don't. So plus, I feel like these um, at like Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh. I feel like they relish the opportunity to write a bunch of crap. And uh, I, it, I, I have to tell you, right? Like it, it. Our listeners know exactly where I stand on Brett Kavanaugh. He's a, he's an excellent writer. He really is. It pains me to say that, but like uh, his his decisions are very very well written from a legal writing perspective. Um, hmm. And there's your Brett Kavanaugh compliment wow. of the millennium. You heard it here first, Brett Cav- uh, Andrew Torres, big Brett Kavanaugh fan. Yeah. So all right. But anyway, back. Sorry, back to the case at hand. Yeah, so that's that's what you're on the lookout for. I think I'm feeling pessimistic. I think that we're going to get an opinion that says it's not a justiciable claim to to argue that a district is gerrymandered for political reasons. And you know, we'll we'll revisit this on Friday, but uh, but there you go. Keep your eyes out for that as you're parsing through the news to understand, you know, what what it says. And and look, if it's a um well, we'll see. We'll see what the opinions are. We, you know, we, we, we don't want to know until they come. Down. I know this is a big question for the beginning of the show, but I, I can't I, I've just I'm wondering at what point, Andrew, do we just drop all the pretense because, you know, we, we're we're kind of bringing knives to gunfights over and over as as Democrats and just say, hey, let's get an activist liberal side of the court to undo all this BS and not worry about the precedent because it's bad precedent. Like at what point? Do we? I feel like we're heading there eventually, and and I worry about that. You know, we had yeah. during our Hall of Fame patron shoutouts on Friday's episode, we had a top patron who said, "Hey, when are you going to do the constitutional hardball episode?" Um, it it is it is on the short term agenda on the whiteboard, and and I would wrap that question that you've just asked into that constitutional right. hardball question. Um, it it's it's a really really good question, and. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think there's an easy answer to it. So, yeah. Um, All right. So well, wanna, we'll leave that for punch. another day. But uh, yeah, 
you start to worry about how how much damage is going to be done in the next few, uh, you know, several yeah. hundred years of this yeah. Kavanaugh-Gorsuch uh, court. Okay, let's get to more depressing news, possibly. Down. 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 What is happening with this Florida referendum? It seems like it's a pull tax, like they're going to charge felons to this this seemed insane to me how depressed should we be about this break it down for us uh you should you should be very depressed here's here's the breakdown in the wave election of 2018 among the many victories that went to the democratic party to the left and to those who believe that the political process should be more participatory and not less uh, was the passage of Amendment 4 in Florida, which passed 6535, right? Florida is, uh, you know, 5149 Republican, right? I mean, it is a, a purple state and it, this was broadly popular throughout the state across all of the Florida counties. It, there were only like two counties in which it was in which Amendment four did not hit the 50 percent threshold. Right. So this is something the voters want. And Florida was one of only four states that permanently disenfranchised anyone convicted of a felony from voting. Let me also add this is a little bit of, you know, white privilege commentary to our listeners. You tend to think of having a felony conviction, right? When you watch lot awful movies, when it, right? Like in the popular culture, having a felony conviction means, you know, murderers means, yeah. you know, the, 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 in practicality, having a felony conviction means having a drug conviction on your record, right? That's, that's who we're talking about. Um, and the Amendment 4 specifically excluded, this is actually going to be part of the problem, um, specifically excluded restoring rights to felons who were convicted of murder or rape, right? Certain mm. sexual offenses. It means violent rape, right? So we're not talking about those. And nevertheless, we are talking about restoring voting rights to one and a half million people in the state of Florida, right? So that kind of tells you where we stand with respect to the war on drugs and, um, and you know, what it means to be convicted of, of a felony. They exempted out, you know, the worst crimes, and it still means a million and yeah. a half people. Um, and by the way, the rights, th- this is the other thing that you need to know, the rights only get restored at the conclusion of the sentence, right? At, after uh, completing all uh, state parole, all federal probation, right? All state probation, right? All the, the sentence has to be concluded in its entirety. Okay. That's going to come into play here. Now that passed two to one in 2018. And then there were sort of immediately some questions about well, you know, what does that mean in terms of we've amended the state constitution? And, and in fact, why don't I when I read the the actual amendment to the state constitution? It is Article Six, Section Four, and pre twenty eighteen, it said 
no person convicted of a felony or adjudicated in this or any other state to be mentally incompetent shall be qualified to vote or hold office until restoration of civil rights. And let me say, that's a case by case. You know, that's kind of like appealing to the governor for clemency Mm -hmm. or for a pardon. Right. I mean, it is that, that you can say. I petition Rick Scott to restore my civil rights. Good luck with that. Uh, Let's go back until restoration of civil rights or removal of disability. And the amendment adds, except as provided in subsection B of this section, any disqualification from voting arising from a felony conviction shall terminate and voting rights shall be restored upon completion of all terms of sentence, including parole or probation. Right. And then B says no person convicted of murder or felony sexual offense. Right. Again, that's violent rape shall be qualified to vote until restoration of civil rights. That's that case by case. So I interpret that. And I think the proponents of the amendment interpreted that as being self-executing. Right. That that now you got a provision in the Constitution. And so there was a report. I'm going to link this in the show notes. This was a Tampa Bay Tribune report in December that the uh, Florida Division of Elections would stop running criminal background checks on voter registration cards. Right. They used to do that and then would throw them out. And now they stopped doing that. And that Mm. seems to be uh, how I would interpret how this Amendment 4 goes into effect. Um, I am not a Republican lawmaker in the state of Florida, however. And so what the Republican legislature has done is gut all of Amendment 4. I'm going to describe exactly how they've done so. But the first thing that I want to point out is this is not a strange occurrence um, in, in today's society. Um, it it should be it should be very very counterintuitive. I actually talked about this uh, with Bryce Blankenagle on uh, Naked Mormonism because Utah did the exact same thing with respect to uh, they passed oh, a yeah. uh, the, the voters in Utah passed a ballot initiative legalizing medical marijuana and then the Utah state legislature, which I don't need to tell you the political composition <laughs> yeah. of the Utah state legislature, uh, passed the bill to implement that. That essentially did the opposite. Right. Um, yeah, they just decide. Nah, we don't care about democracy or the, pe- yep. the will of the people. We'll just uh, override that real quick. Yep. And in fact, in the majority of states that permit direct uh, voter ballot initiatives to 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 put uh, referendums, right, to put laws on the ballot, like what happened in Utah. Um, the majority of those states, 11 of 21, have no restrictions on what the legislature can do after you, the voters, uh, pass, you know, vote for that initiative. Florida, you would think that they would have restrictions because in Florida, the voters cannot put a law directly on the ballot. The only thing they can put directly on the ballot is a constitutional amendment. And that's why this is called Amendment for and not, you know, initiative for referendum for. But... <laughs> uh, as happened in Florida, again, with the issue of, of medical marijuana, right? Florida uh, voters a couple of years ago passed a medical marijuana amendment to the Constitution, and the legislature immediately passed a bill that made it a crime to smoke medical marijuana, right? Wow. Um, so, you know, completely undercut uh, the 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 will of the people. Um, I, I'm going to link an article. Um, it's an article from the 
Washington, D.C. from a, a, a periodical in D.C. with which I was not previously familiar that talks about uh, this happening in the District of Columbia. The District of Columbia is another uh, one of these jurisdictions which has no restrictions. D.C. passed a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage, which, by the way, like, you know, we've we've sort of gone back and forth on this. Um, there are certainly jurisdictions, I think, that could not sustain yeah. a $15 an hour minimum. D.C. is not one of the, right? right. D.C. Yeah, can no, sustain a $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah. Right? And the D.C. City Council, again, you know, calling out our own side here, like I would describe the D.C. City Council as somewhat to the left of the Utah State Legislature. Due to, you know, corporate pressure, they decided that they were going to scuttle the entire initiative. Jeez. So th- there's a really, really great article with, uh, again, this periodical is called City Lab. And the the journalist interviewed a guy named Josh Altick, who writes for Ballotpedia. I use Ballotpedia as a resource, oh, yeah. right? It's a Wikipedia ballot initiatives. I've linked to it in the show notes before. Here's what he said about overturning, uh, you know, democratically enacted Uh, ballot measures. He said, quote, it's not a new phenomenon by any means, but I haven't seen this much brashness on the part of legislative bodies in the six years I've been covering these or even in the last decade or so. And I think that's I mean, that that comports with my layperson's take on, you know, how frequently legislatures, you know, Voters vote in wildly popular measures and then the legislators are like, yeah, you know what? Maybe not. Um, it seems and, like a lot of our politics these days is a minority ruling over the will of the people. Like, you know, it's like yeah. whether it's Republicans through gerrymandering or any of these things, it's it's frustrating. Well, well, I suspect, look, we've talked about gerrymandering for congressional districts at the federal level, right? Like, so the gerrymandering takes place at the state level, but they are to the U.S. House of Representatives. Um we have not discussed the application of red map software within at at the state legislature level um and i suspect that this brashness is directly related to the trickle down effect of now you know seats in at your in your local state legislature are becoming uh more hardened partisan you know, blue, red and more gerrymandered and more safe. And that's that. Look, that is the only thing that can explain a Republican legislature that skated by, you know, the, the skin of its teeth in 2018 in Florida uh, and a Republican governor who got in by, I mean, you know, hundreds of votes. Right. I mean, like we, we, we are not talking about, you know, DeSantis's victory was incredibly narrow over Gillum. Taking something that has a two to one favorability rating that passed sixty five thirty five and going, no, you know, we're not we're not interested in that. Um, and and the only remedy again, we're delaying a little bit getting into what this bill actually does. Um, if you live in Florida and you are outraged, your only remedy is to vote these people out. Um, uh, we're going to talk about some of the potential legal challenges, but but your I should say your primary remedy is is to vote people out who just blatantly disregard the will of the people. So so what does this do? The bill really does four things. Okay, first, uh, and all four of these things are designed right, nakedly, transparently designed to 
undermine the intent of Amendment 4. It's designed to make it harder for felons to vote in Florida. And that is felons, you know, those individuals with a felony conviction who have served and completed their sentence and paid their debt to society. So it does four things. Number one, it adds in a deterrent on the voter application registration, right, that says the uniform statewide voter registration application must be designed to elicit the following information from the applicant, including whether the applicant has been convicted of a felony and if convicted has had his or her voting rights restored by including the statement, I affirm I am not a convicted felon or if I am, my rights relating to voting have been restored. And then there will be a checkbox. So that will be mandatory. That seems to completely undermine and contradict the point of Amendment 4, requiring somebody to— Well, would you be able to just answer yes because, yeah, the amendment uh, restored my voting rights? You can, but remember, right, we are already talking about, right, a— low information sect of the voting population, right? Like we're talking about people who have been in prison uh, and therefore, you know, the, the, the more complexity you put in their path of, well, I don't know. Did I specifically have my rights restored? I don't know. Right. And I'm nervous about signing a legal document, right? Like I just served a felony conviction. I'm rather nervous about signing a legal document and checking a box if I'm not a hundred percent certain. So that's the first thing. It's a deterrent. Okay, maybe you get around that with some, you know, public information. And we're going to talk about that at the end of the segment. But but that's point one. Point two requires a permanent address. Right. And we've talked about this before. Requiring a permanent address disenfranchises people who are homeless. You have a right to vote if you are homeless. But this will prevent you from formally registering your your application and obviously prior criminal record correlates very strongly strongly with lack of future job opportunities and with being homeless number three it reverses that voluntary initiative that i talked about it directs that the department quote shall identify those registered voters who have been convicted of a felony and whose voting rights have not been restored End of quote. Hey, listeners, opening arguments is brought to you by the Great Courses Plus. You know, I'm always trying to become a smarter version of myself and learn as much as I can. That's why I do this show. That's why I listen to Andrew. And I I imagine you're the same way. And that's also why I've been a huge fan of the Great Courses Plus for years. There's a wealth of information available on the audio and video streaming service from some of the best college professors. Learn about virtually anything like Watergate, Winston Churchill, the Roman Empire, nuclear physics, and even travel photography, just to name a few. It's all the fun parts of a really amazing college course without the pressure of the homework and the exam. So it's just the fun parts. There's always something new to explore with The Great Courses Plus. And I recommend this week, why don't you check out Thinking About Cybersecurity from Cyber Crime to Cyber Warfare. Uh, this is something that I imagine will become more and more relevant <laughs> in, in our world. It is by cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig, who explores cybersecurity in relation to the Constitution and the tools we can use to protect ourselves from cyber crime. Given that the uh, country itself was subject to a bit of cyber crime recently and will continue to be, I think that's a very interesting, very relevant course. Now, if you haven't signed up for the Great Courses Plus yet, now is the time. 
we have a fantastic limited time offer for our listeners. You get a free trial, plus you lock into their lowest price of $10 per month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off the regular price. This is an incredible deal to get unlimited access to the Great Courses Plus. And I would remind you that you get to stream anything. Maybe you don't want to stream a course that I recommend or, or a law course or whatever. Stream whatever you want. That's unlimited access to the entire library. But that deal is only available for a limited time and only by going to our special URL. So to get your free trial plus that 50% off your monthly plan now, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash OA. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash OA. Go check it out right now. Number four, and this is a two-parter, and this is the, the part that is gathering attention. It defines what it means to have completed your sentence under the, under the amendment. And it says, for a financial obligation arising from a felony conviction, full payment of the financial obligation or waiver of the financial obligation with the consent of the payee. Any financial obligation continued through the civil judgment provision uh, constitutes an outstanding obligation for purposes of the section. So what does that mean? And then, and then the last part also requires that when you are in prison, that the Department of Corrections prepare an accounting of all of your outstanding financial obligations imposed by the court, by the department, or by a Florida Commission on Offender Review for each felony conviction, and then to provide that to you within two weeks of your release. So um, th this is, is a obviously a monumental burden on uh felons who have been released. It says you must come current with all of your obligations if they are continued. That is, if you're on some sort of a payment plan. And why would you be on a payment plan? Because you've just been in prison, right? Yeah. And presumably there aren't too many people other than Paul Manafort in prison who have large amounts of disposable income. Your sentence is not considered, quote, completed until you have paid all of those financial obligations. Uh, you said at the start of the segment that um, this feels like a poll tax. Uh, I will tell you that it it certainly feels like a poll tax, right? Because it, it it's intended to do the exact same thing. It is intended to put a financial penalty on individuals who are trying to uh, vote. And it is intended to do what the poll tax was intended to do, which is to stop uh, undesirables from voting. Um, that being said, I, I have been through the Florida case law. I, I can't say I've been through everything, um, but I have uh, uh, researched the Florida case law on poll taxes, and I, I think that this is distinguishable, right, in uh. the sense that um, it does not directly require you to pay anything to vote. Um, it requires that you meet certain administrative conditions to qualify as having completed your sentence. It's why I wanted to go through all of it. Um, there will be lawsuits involving this this bill, and we will track them. Opening Arguments is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Hiring can be a real challenge. I used to have to do it myself, and if you're not careful, if you're not using ZipRecruiter, you are going to get a ton of resumes from people who aren't qualified, who didn't read your requirements for your job, and in general are really wasting your time and bogging down 
what you need to be doing. But there's a way to avoid all that, and that is ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the world's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans through thousands of resumes to find people the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As those applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is because each day, week, month that you are trying to fill a spot, the work is is backing up and backing up. You get more and more busy and that gives you even less time to review. So you want to get on that right away. It is so important to have a good quality candidate for your position as soon as you possibly can. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. It just feels like, uh, yeah, maybe you can't fight it on the pull tax thing, maybe, but like, I don't know if you're going to get to this, but I, how come they can't be sued for just completely undermining what the people voted for? You know, like there's no reason, nothing in that referendum was like, oh yeah, we also, we don't want people to vote if they owe a few dollars to the court or something. Yeah. And, and look, we will track the way in which the lawsuits are framed when they are filed. Certainly the analog to the poll tax is going to be raised. I, I don't think that that's a very strong argument. The Voting Rights Act will be uh, raised because that will allow the plaintiffs to dig into the evidence that this has a uh, deliberately discriminatory intent. Um, we will have to evaluate the evidence on that. That seems like a, a, a significantly stronger argument to me, right? Um, it, 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 I don't think it will be, I don't think that that's an implausible claim as you know, it is very difficult to show uh, intent uh, in the law. We've talked about that, uh, you know, every every couple of weeks we talk about that. The argument you're making is an argument of ultra-virus, which we have also talked about uh, in, in previous episodes. Um, and, and that's going to be a challenging, it's going to be a challenging argument, right, that says essentially the legislature has no power when the citizenry amends the Constitution to enact legislation to implement that amendment that is contrary to the spirit or the tenor of the amendment, right? Like that's what the argument has to be. Now, the good part of the argument is amending the Constitution trumps what the yeah, legislature can do. I was just going to say, I, yep. I don't... Yeah. seems like an easy argument. They're amending the friggin' constitution. Yep. So that's the first half. It's the second half that's going to be the challenge, right? But which is, is the court going to weigh in and say this particular law is contrary to something that wasn't explicitly prohibited in the proposed constitutional amendment, but, you know, sort of seems on face. I mean, you know, everybody can look at it and go, this is contrary to and undermines the intent of the referendum. Um, it, it that's going to be a more difficult argument. It it, it just is. So <sighs> so we're going to track. We're going to follow again. In no way am I saying that this uh, should not be fought. It this should be fought tooth and nail. But you know the the initial kind of hot takes that I saw of. 
uh, well, this seems like it's a poll tax, and this uh, I I it's going to be a tough fight. So um, let's uh, let's let's strap in for that fight. Yeah, oh, man. All right, and it's not. I think we know from past episodes that the Florida court is not going to be particularly liberal, right? Yeah. Nope. That's yeah. that is that is true. The the Florida Supreme Court right had three vacancies, and those vacancies will be filled by uh, Republican Governor DeSantis. So uh, you know they the we we talked about in a prior episode that the lawsuit, which is now moot. That, you know, uh, Rick Scott had attempted yeah. to issue a directive that was going to allow him to replace in the event that Andrew Gillum won. Uh, but Andrew Gillum lost because I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, what happened I, in I still Florida. don't know what, what happened. There. <laughs> um, hey, speaking of Andrew Gillum, I, I want to point out um, this is this is really great. And, um, and, and, and we can end on a, a positive note. This was something that was shared out by my celebrity crush, Elizabeth Warren. And, uh, and she pointed out that, uh, that Andrew Gillum is using his campaign war chest, not to roll over into another uh, election, not some people talked about, he might, you know, pull a Beto and, you know, run for president. He's not doing either of those things. He has launched a Florida voter registration drive. It mm. is called bring it home, Florida that, that uh, mirrors his campaign slogan and under Florida campaign law, he can roll his uh, war chest, which is several million dollars uh, into that campaign drive. That's a great thing. And, yeah. Florida's huge. You know, and uh, yeah. it could be a, you know, it could make all the difference in 2020. So, yeah, yeah good, good absolutely. Look, if if Donald Trump loses Florida, there is virtually no path to, yeah. to him winning reelection in 2020. So what a weird state um, Florida is. What yeah. A weird and, state. and and look, the battleground here is not between, you know, convincing. Right? I, I'm saying, hey, look, you know. You you have your crazy Trump supporting, you know, lunatic in Florida. You don't have to persuade that person to change their vote. No, you, you just need to enfranchise to people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You just need to count people who want to vote. Yeah. And uh, and that's right. that's where that's where the battleground is now. So um, so props to uh, Andrew Gillum and uh, props, as always, to uh, to Liz Warren, who. Uh, I I think is you know just really focused on the nuts and bolts of of governing at a time in which um, you know there's there's an awful lot going on among the candidates. So, but everybody knows yeah, how I feel about the, Elizabeth she's Warren. the OA favorite right now, uh, and <laughs> in my opinion, the most qualified and deserving of the job. But that won't matter. All right, let's uh, move on to a new kind of deference. I'm so you know it's been all Chevron deference all the time. But uh, apparently there's a different kind of deference. I'm going to guess there's several different kinds. But what uh, what deference will we be learning about today? <laughs> so we're going to be talking about our deference, A-U-E-R, our deference. Um, it is sometimes also called seminal rock deference, uh, but that's... Um, that's a stupid way of calling it for, for, for reasons that we will understand in a minute. Our deference is adjacent to Chevron deference. It is also uh, deference to an administrative agency's decisions. And so it is therefore under assault from the Supreme Court's activist right wing. And and again, let me 
you know, let's be totally clear. I like being totally clear. <laughs> let's be totally clear. The reason that the activist right wing has brought uh, various forms of administrative deference under assault is because they recognize that the White House changes hands, uh, but that they are close to completing their goal of weaponizing the judiciary in such a way that it will not change hands. This is a naked power grab. The whole point of eliminating deference is to take the decision-making authority away from an administrative agency, again, which changes when you elect a new president, and put it in the hands of judges. So, uh, again, out to our libertarian friends, to our small government friends, this radically if if you're a you know the judge needs to just call balls and strikes and be an umpire and not make the law this takes administrative agency decisions and says you know who knows the most about what an administrative agency does a judge yeah so what but in i particular... thought that's what it <laughs> turned into with the chevron deference too yep so so here's the distinction right chevron deference is about um, Congress passes a law that delegates authority to an executive agency to do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And the congressional law is uh, vague, has gaps, and the administrative agency is then empowered to promulgate regulations that will fill in those gaps that, that Congress left in the statute, right? And Chevron deference is about are those regulations permissible? Do they fall within the authority that was delegated to that agency by Congress? And historically, right, the Chevron deference inquiry has been a two-step inquiry, right? First, you say, uh, first, the, the judges still get to be the gatekeeper. They look at a statute and they say, is the statute's delegation of authority to this administrative agency ambiguous? Um, if it's not, then Chevron deference doesn't apply. And, and you know, activist courts uh, or non-activist courts, right? Let's, let's be fair. The, the judge gets to say, no, it clearly says you only have the authority to do X. So when you say we want to do Y, no dice. But if it is ambiguous, Right. Then Chevron deference says we defer to the administrative agency's interpretation of that statute. This, as we've said on multiple occasions, goes back to 1984 to a rather conservative opinion in defense of the Reagan era EPA. Our deference is a little bit different. It is about the agency's ability to to promulgate regulations when the regulations themselves are alleged to be ambiguous. Mm. Um, and the question is, when the agency's regulations themselves are ambiguous, to whom do you look for guidance? Do you look to the agency or do you look to the courts? And uh, this takes us all the way back to, uh, well, you want to you take, a, take a guess? How, that seems like a hard thing to guess. I'm, I'm happy, yeah. I have to guess an agency that has issued some vague... No, just the year. Just the year of oh. the case, which is Auer versus Robbins, right? When the Supreme Court said, yeah, you know what? We should defer to the agency's interpretation of its own regulations. You know what's weird is that sounds like you're just describing Chevron deference. Maybe I don't understand... <laughs> the distinction but um yeah. but because, I, I don't because, know because chevron oh, no, 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 I, i'm i'm glad before we go to the question okay um let's let's make this as clear as as it can be made right because it's a it's a tough area 
Chevron deference is the question of, is the regulation permissible? Is a clear regulation permissible, right? So the original Chevron case was the Reagan era EPA saying, hey, our interpretation of uh, clean up the air is we're not going to clean up the air. Right. right? And it was the regulation was totally clear, right? It was, you know. We understood what it meant. The question was, did they have the authority to issue that regulation in the first place? And the Chevron decision said, yes, yes, you do, because the delegation was to do whatever it takes uh, with respect to air quality. And this is a regulation with respect to air quality, even if it's, you know, Hmm. negative air quality. Right. So that's Chevron deference. Do you have the power to issue the regulation in the first place? But then the question is, suppose an agency says that as part of the regulation, well, we will implement best standards and practices to improve the quality of the air, right? Well, what is best standards and practices, right? Like if the regulation itself is ambiguous, then the question is, who do you turn to to figure out what best I guess standards and maybe practices? Maybe I'm not. Okay, I get that. I get the distinction, but it just feels to me like the correct course of action is, hey, we need clarification on this. So just rewrite that standard so that's more clear. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. And that's what I, I'm going to talk about the case in, in a minute. But but that's essentially what the Supreme Court said in our versus Robbins. Right. It said, hey, if this is a regulation that's been passed by the agency and we don't know what the regulation means, we should ask the agency what it yeah. means. Right. So. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but but when do you think the Supreme Court decided that as a matter of law? Uh, I have I just no said. idea. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of what would. I mean, unless it's like a Trump agency giving a really vague uh, thing because they're understaffed and don't know how to write anything. That's the only, the only guess I have. Yeah. Um, so. This this goes all the way back to 1997, okay. uh, which you may recall. And the reason I was I was trying to get at that is, you know, we, we the Supreme Court has gone through periods of being, you know, more liberal, more conservative. 1997, pretty conservative court. Uh, Our versus Robbins was a nine zero decision wow. authored by Antonin Scalia. <laughs> OK, so not crazy leftists trying to expand the administrative state or whatever it is that you're going to see in the news. But in fact, uh, Antonin Scalia announcing a totally common sense principle. So let uh, let me talk about the facts of that case just just, just for a minute, right? Because I, I think it tracks exactly with what you've just said, right? So in that case, you had uh, the plaintiffs were members of the St. Louis Police Department, and they brought a case against uh, the Department of Labor, claiming that they were owed back pay and um, overtime under the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? And their argument was, hey, look, we've been classified by the police department as exempt full-time salaried employees, right? Um, And under the regulations that are promulgated by the Department of Labor, you can't be an exempt salaried employee if uh, and and here's the quote from the regulation, uh, your amount is subject to reduction because of variations in the quality or quantity of the work performed, right? So 
Makes sense. The FLSA says you've got to pay overtime if you make somebody work overtime, unless they're salaried and they meet the other requirements. But you can't call somebody salaried if they don't get a regular salary, right? If you can deduct uh, sums from their salary, then they're not really salaried, right? And as part of that, the police officers said, look, uh, under department policies, our pay can, in fact, be reduced for disciplinary infractions, right? And so that relates to the quality or quantity of the work performed, right? And, we, you know, we've, we've seen when police are, you know, sort of suspended without pay, usually for good reason. Um, but they said, look, like, so that means you can't possibly qualify us as exempt employees because although we receive a salary, that salary is subject to potential reduction if they don't like the way we're, we're performing our jobs. And the Supreme Court asked the Secretary of Labor to file an amicus brief as to how the Department of Labor interpreted those two regulations, right? They said, look, like, okay, we get it. There's a little bit of potential ambiguity as between those regulations. Hey, Secretary of Labor, how do you interpret those regulations? And then the Secretary in the amicus brief said, yeah, we think that this is met for public sector employees like police officers, if there is an actual practice of uh, making such deductions or an employment policy that creates a significant likelihood of such deductions, then you, you're hourly. Uh, but if, you know, you just get disciplinary infractions when you do something horrible, we think by and large, you're still a salaried employee, right? Notwithstanding the fact that it might contradict uh, or seem a little bit inconsistent with this prior regulation. And so the Supreme Court, again, I want to emphasize 9-0 in an opinion written by Antonin Scalia said, because the salary basis test is a creature of the Secretary of Labor's own regulations, his interpretation of it under our jurisprudence must be controlling unless it is plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation. So that was it. That was the ruling. That became our deference, right? If A regulation is ambiguous. You ask the agency. And if the agency has a controlling opinion that makes it clear, as long as that is not plainly erroneous or inconsistent, you defer to the agency's interpretation. Make total sense? Yep. Yep. So now we enter into the present case, which is a case called Kaiser versus Shulkin. This is the case that will be decided tomorrow that... I want you to watch because I am positive that this has been taken up as a vehicle. Question number one in the petition for cert was, hey, this Supreme Court should overrule our deference, right? Should overrule. A 9-0 Scalia-authored opinion. Wow. Um, but that's that's not good enough now. We've got to get rid of our deference. Um, the facts are... Uh, Entirely analogous, right? So Kaiser served in the Marine Corps in Vietnam from uh, 1962 to 1966. Uh, in 1982, he filed for disability benefits from the VA on the grounds that he had PTSD. That was reviewed by the VA. 1983, their expert rejected his PTSD claims, and they said, look, um, his behavior right now is, uh, and, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, because he's a jerk and not because he has PTSD. Wow. So, uh, you know, he's, he's legitimately, he's, he's, he's seen a lot of terrible stuff, but, uh, but his behaviors are due to a personal 
uh, personality problem and not due to uh, PTSD. In two thousand getting that diagnosis. That's yeah, I know, right? Uh, yeah, you're just so, an a hole. Sorry, you're just a clown horn. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, apparently uh, they wow. they joined the military too. But uh, but twenty years, twenty three years after that, two thousand and six, uh, Kaiser reopened his request. Um, he had new evidence that um, <laughs> that cast light and said, no, 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 no I did. I helped a lady cross the street. I'm not an a hole. What's the evidence? Um, it, it was related to. Uh, let's be fair here. I mean, I don't. I don't want to pick on this 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 poor vet with PTSD that that was related to the extent and and modern psychiatric understandings of the you know the the depth to which he'd been exposed you know during yeah his and let's search. be very yeah. clear I like being very clear as the patron yeah. says yeah no the government I mean, VA get you sent yeah. these people to go die in a war the least you can do yes. is take care yes. of anything they might yeah. need afterward. Right, that is the official position of opening Absolutely. arguments. So, uh, leaving the humor aside, and also Mr. Kaiser, don't, if you're don't send people to go die in stupid wars is the yes. first position. But if you're, you know, evil and do that, then you also need to pay for all their medical costs forever. That's my yep, agreed. So, uh, so the VA agreed in twenty in in two thousand and six. They gave him a fifty percent disability right so so 2006 they're like yeah well we, we think it's it's half you're a jerk yeah. and uh and half ptsd kaiser filed a notice of disagreement and then um and then in the next year the va altered it again and they said y- you know what we're going to give you 70 percent disability from 1983 to 2006 and a hundred percent from 2006 on Right. So new evidence. Uh, we agree you're now 100 percent disabled. Uh, but in the time in the back period from 83 to 2006, uh, we agree you should have had a partial diagnosis and it should be 70 percent. Hmm. Um, he appealed to the board, to the Veterans Administration Board, um, and he wanted 100 percent since 1983. Um, he claimed that the board failed to receive all, quote, relevant evidence regarding his participation in um, and it was uh, it was Operation Harvest Moon in Vietnam in 1965 was what what he was a part of. I'll, I'll include the Wikipedia note if you're interested sort of in that uh, in that that clandestine. I mean, I operation. love the Harvest Moon video games, but I, I imagine yeah. it didn't involve him farming and, and uh, selling flowers to people. Oh. Yeah, it did. It, it did not. Um, and so the the essence of his challenge, right, was what counts as relevant evidence. And so, again, this is a, a textbook case of our deference, right? The VA said, yeah, um, we agree relevant might be kind of a vague word, but we've taken a look at it and we decided that, you know, his the, the Operation Harvest Moon was disclosed in the 1983 diagnosis. Um, maybe they didn't get all of the details, but they got enough, quote, relevant evidence as we define it. So we're not going to revisit that decision. And the uh, circuit court for the federal circuit, uh, which hears appeals from, among other places, the veterans court. Right. Which is what decided in the first place, affirmed that decision on the basis of our deference. Right. Said, look, yeah, the VA knows what constitutes relevant evidence. So we're going to defer to that standard. So sorry, you know, you you get the 70 from 1983 to the to 2006 and 100 percent everything beyond that. And Kaiser petitioned the Supreme Court to 
overturn hour, right? It is exactly like the uh, Janus versus Ask Me. It is exactly like a host of cert petitions you are going to see in the next 10 years in which um, in order to reach conservative outcomes, litigants are just going to ask this court, hey, <laughs> you remember that case from 20 years ago or five years ago or 40 years ago? Yeah, we don't like it. Get rid of it. Um, and, uh, and they granted cert in this case. Right. Um, but hold on. What is the conservative outcome that, like, I still don't even know why, a con- like, again, it was so, a conservative 9-0 opinion in 1997. Why now would this be some conservative thing that conservatives would want? Yep. Because what conservatives want here is to dismantle the administrative state, right? To take as much power away from administrative agencies as they possibly can, um, presumably after, right? right? So, so, I mean, you know, think about the the pernicious effect of this. You have wide ranging uh, Trump administrative agencies promulgating regulations like the Title X regulations we've talked about that that uh, you know effectively de- uh, deprive Planned Parenthood of its funding, um, like the order overturning net neutrality, right? So they want to get that in, and then they want to freeze those by denying our next president Elizabeth Warren the opportunity to go in and reverse, right? So the more you can undermine the power of administrative agencies and put that power in the hands of the courts, which are now, as I've said, fully weaponized and and in the hands of right wing activists, um, the more you give those right wing judges the opportunity to uh, to say, no, like this is this is the extent of 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 the power here. Um, And so on. And so what you're doing is it's a step beyond. They're not reaching uh, a particular result in this case. Right. What they're doing is putting procedures in place that will enable them on a case-by-case basis to review every agency opinion going forward de novo <sighs> right for on their own to say like oh is this consistent do we like this is that and and uh, that's, will agencies that's be able result. to fight back by just rewriting whatever regulation at any time they want to does that get around i mean if if the if these case by case basis cases uh, involve like, oh, the following thing is vague, so we're going to decide. It means it's, can they just be like, okay, well, we're pulling that and writing a new one. So that's a really, really great question, and the the answer to that is to promulgate new regulations requires you to go through the Administrative Procedure Act, requires you to have a public notice and comment period, uh. right? Requires you to do all of the things that are a heightened standard, right? So it's a way, it's and kind of a by the way, nothing happens when you strike down a regulation, right, or issue a contrary interpretation, right? Then you can delay you mm-hmm. go through the APA, you go through the notice and comment, there'll be litigation over it, right? It's it's a way of uh, preventing a the next administration from in immediately making wholesale changes uh, at the executive level. Um, now, that's my take. Why don't I give you the steel man version of the argument, right? We like to do that on the show. I, I want to do that. I want to be as fair as possible. The steel man version of the argument comes from John Yu and James Phillips, who wrote an article for the National Review. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to link it in the show notes, but I don't recommend clicking on it, A, because I don't like giving the National Review clicks, uh, and B, because you will come out dumber uh, and with less of an understanding of deference. It's, it's written in a deliberately obfuscatory way, right? Uh, All right, cool. Uh, this the, is the steel man, just so everybody Yeah, remembers. this is the steel yeah. man. But, but so here's what they say. Quote, this, that is uh, the Chevron and our deference, right, which they lump together, like they deliberately try and make you not understand the difference that I tried to parse sure. out at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. imagine not understanding the difference, <laughs> idiot. So this outsources the judge's job to the agency. This is bad enough when dealing with acts of Congress, bracket, that's Chevron deference, but it is even worse when a court defers to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations in the course of an enforcement action. Okay. The agency truly is then judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> executioner. Mirroring. No, no, no. It gets better. Mirroring the tyranny against which Montesquieu and Madison warned. Oh. Parenthetically. I, near, and, this, and that this is, is, I almost cursed. I That was a close. <laughs> I almost let loose with a clown horn because that was so... Oh, the, my God. I hate the only people. argument here, they reduce to a parenthetical, by the way. The argument is, it, and then in parenthesis, it also motivates agencies to maximize their power by promulgating ambiguous regulations. Uh, now, when I read that, I actually went to research that because, look, that's a fair argument, right? To say, if we defer to an agency's interpretation of its own regs and the interpretation is subject to less procedural oversight than the regs themselves, then, okay, yeah, I get that. Then maybe there is an incentive for agencies to deliberately promulgate ambiguous regs, kind of get them through the process, and mm. then come back and, and say, okay, well, here's the guidelines for interpreting them. Uh, and, and okay. So that's a fair yeah, argument. That's fair. Yep. So I decided to go to the evidence and I looked up, I want to give a shout out to, um, somebody I'm going to try and get on the show. Um, university of Penn law professor, Daniel Walters. He wrote a law review for a law review article for, uh, the Columbia law review that definitively answers this question. Right. Um, and, Spoiler, definitively answers it in the negative. So first, I mean, let me point out the the counter argument, right? Like I just steel manned it. The, the counter argument is um, that's a stupid thing to think, because if you're an agency, you deliberately give up, number one, the ability to do exactly what you want right now. Uh, yeah. Number two, if you make your regs vague and then you're like, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll fix it later. You're talking about executive agencies where the heads change all the time, mm. right? Like not just from presidency to presidency, but like within a presidency, you know, you go from, um, you know, a, a, uh, again, under normal presidents, you might go from somebody who, you know, views net neutrality as a pet issue versus to somebody who's ambivalent about it. Right? Yeah. Net neutrality um, was the thing that came to my mind when I was trying to think about how that would work in that context. Yeah. Um, and, and then number three, and this is a more legal specific issue, but you, when you promulgate super vague regulations, you that makes it easier to run afoul of the Administrative Procedure Act on those regulations themselves, right? Because you have to conduct fact finding, uh, and it has to be you know supported by uh, rational evidence. And the more vague you are, the harder it is to marshal the kind of evidence that right. uh, that is necessary to survive. Plus, it's got to be legally more of a pain in the butt if you're just if you're a 
I would think if you're an agency trying to get something done and they're, oh, here's our plan. We're going to write this yeah. super vague thing, uh, have people be confused, probably sue us. I don't know. It doesn't seem like, yeah. seems like a low return for the, for the trouble. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is belied by our modern experience, right? By our experience in the last two years, right? Like the, the Trump regulations that, that his executive agencies have promulgated are not vague. They yeah. are super specific and horrible. Uh, but that's the whole point, right? Like the, the changes to Title 10 that we talked about were not like, hey, you know what? We want to make it harder for people to have abortion. It was, we will deprive you of funds unless you segregate, you know, in, in, in the particular ways that we talked about, right? Like all of the things that they have have done uh, have not been vague, have, have in fact been very, very specific. So um, what Walters did that was genius is to take a look at executive agency regulations using a, a computer program that, that he wrote uh, mm. to crunch the actual wording of the regulations, both pre and post hour, right? So he looked at 1,200 rules wow. that were what he defined as economically significant from the period 1982 to 2016, right? So that's 15 years pre-hour, 19 years post-hour, okay? Um, and then what he did was he constructed various linguistic analyses, right? So two of the primary uh, methods that he used were, num number one, looking for an index of what he called paradigmatically vague legal terms, hmm. things like reasonable, appropriate, and prudent, right? And then he, he conducted, I'm going to read a little bit of this, um, a, a measure uh, that he calls polysemy or polysemy. I, I don't, I don't, it's not a word that, with which I was previously familiar. P-O-L-Y-S-E-M-Y, a measure of vagueness, right? And, huh. and he writes it this way. He says, a low-scoring sentence on polysemy reads, the gram, milliliter, quantity between 2 and 5 grams, milliliters, should be rounded to the nearest 0 0.05 grams, milliliters, and the gram, milliliters, quantity less than 2 grams, milliliters, should be expressed in 0 0.01 grams, milliliter. Pretty, okay. uh, pretty specific. Very, very specific. It's not one of those vague ones that... Yeah. <laughs> High-scoring on polysemy, right, is, eh. quote... Oh. Yeah, well, he, no, here's what he says. <laughs> is it just a lot of, eh, eh, yeah, yeah. Well, these are from two separate sections of the yeah. Code of Federal Regulations, right? Substance means a specific food or component of food, regardless of whether the food is a conventional food form or dietary supplement that includes vitamins, minerals, herbs, or other nutritional substances. <laughs> um, I don't even know what any and, of that means. Yeah, okay. exactly, right? Yeah. So he says, right, the latter sentence employs general categories such as food, minerals, and herbs that leave the agency with ample room to make arguments that a particular item is really outside the ambit of an overarching category. The polysemy measure aims to pick up differences between regulatory texts on just this tendency to employ broad categories instead of specific terms. So that was his methodology. I will cut to the punchline. Um, there, there are. I'm going to link the article in the show notes. Everybody should read this article. I actually tweeted out in advance of this uh, episode being recorded. Um, the post-hour mean for legal vagueness, right? Those index of terms and polysemy was significantly lower than the pre-hour mean. So, what does that mean in practical terms? It means that the thesis that 
our deference encourages agencies to write vague regulations is exactly wrong. It is, in fact, the opposite. Since our agencies have been much more careful in crafting their regulations, much more specific in defining exactly what those regulations mean, avoiding vague language, encouraging specific language, testable metrics and thresholds. That's data. So what you have on the other side, what you have from the you and Phillips and the opponents of, quote, the administrative state are anecdotes and stories. Um, and as as Walters points out, there is not a single example to which they can point of this vagueness thesis actually being implemented, right, of of an agency kind of deliberately crafting uh, a, a regulation in vague terms so as to supplement it with regulations to uh, to aggregate more power for itself. Right? He says, all right, case closed, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Case I mean, closed. I will I'll read his conclusion. He says. The behavioral theory advanced by Auer's critics has taken on a life of its own, with the critics failing to offer even one concrete example of an agency deliberately crafting a vague regulation to increase the agency's subsequent interpretive discretion. I, I, I can't say it any better than that. So, mm. so there is your backgrounder on our deference. All of that is hopefully to... Um, channel your outrage because uh, the Supreme Court is going to overturn our they are going to rule in favor of Kaiser Wow and it's going to be another data point if I look hey I will do the happiest Andrew was wrong if I'm wrong about this but I'm not gonna be wrong about it um, this is this is why you know leave aside the conspiracy theories this is why the Federalist Society wanted Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the bench Um this it, it when you go to look for when i when i went to look for steel manning the argument you will find just oceans of critiques of the administrative state from the furthest right wing sources this is what they want to do and they're going to start doing it starting tomorrow so um so cool. happy midweek everybody yay yeah exciting well hopefully we'll root for an andrew was wrong but thanks for the breakdown. Uh, I think I, I think I get it. That's that's a that's a tough, complex one, but you you explained it in a really good way. So thanks for that, Andrew. Well, thanks. All right, it is time to thank our new patrons over at Patreon.com/slash/law and uh, buckle up, everybody. <laughs> Andrew, why don't you uh, start us off? Yeah. Strap in. All right. Special thanks to Stephanie St. Amore coming back. We uh, we greatly appreciate that. To Kevin Sullivan, Abdul Ismail, to still working on the upcoming Skeptical Humanist sci-fi novels, The Elux, Adam Costa, to No Laws on Cirrus, Just Cops, to Wouter Vermeyen, Teresa English, Jerry Osborne, Sandra Molteni. Fine, I'll donate to you another Higgins. To Cody Armacher, Cameron Richtick, Eric Odinson, Gigi is the best mom to new baby Luca. Oh, congratulations, Gigi and baby Luca. Stuff and polls. Yeah, sure. Philip Sherich, Michael Ellison, Brian Mendel, Mike Fiedek, David Jorgersberg, Jodersberg. Sorry, there's a weird character in the middle there. Uh, Jason Willis, J.N. Tannen, 
Andrew and Elizabeth in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. To ABL, to Resident Stevel. I like that one. Xenia Flowers, Amber Dukes, Skeptical Seventh, Alik Evans. When things get too juicy politically and you just have to become a patron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> Thank you. To Prometheus, to Underwater Hockey is the only true hockey. I, I, I think I can get behind that one. Sean Meadows, Kine or Kane Fenton, Thomas Grimley, Nicholas Rudig, Alex Arnett says, listen to philosophers in space. I agree. Listen to philosophers in space. So I says to Muller, I says, <laughs> <laughs> Niall Jones, Justin R. Porter, Oisin Chaloner, Sam Thompson, Ben, Gabe O'Brien, Deborah Fineros, Robert Hausman, Daniel Kay, the serious ventriloquist. Yeah. I, I like that one. Are there serious ventriloquists? Uh, King Leon, God of the Aboriginals, Henry Dooley, Elizabeth Hirsch, Justin Norman, Snoop Will 313, Corey Thompson, and Amos Take it away, Tom. All right. Thank you, Tom Hamilton, John Jordan Wynn, Beth Rose, Amanda Pittman, Lisa Nguyen, Ari Jensen, Daniel Emmons, Alicia McIntyre, Andrew Barbosa, Stacy, Justin, Snaz, Jesse James, Alex Sloan, Where Are All My Shrimp, <laughs> Lola Arlano Fryer, Megan Mann, Tara Lynch, Jay Cole, Patrick Everett, Thomas Dougherty, Belfour's Billion Dollar Bribe. Dana Sparks, Brandon Carson, Aaron Singer, Richard Reed, Aaron Ingber, Use the Wand, Willow, <laughs> Phil, Ryan Kovaleski, Sarah Ricken, Neo, Neo Tetron, Bob the Builder, oh wow, nice, Ryan, Left at the Valley Podcast, Seth Schreier, OMG, WTF, BBQ, BYOB, Beer, <laughs> Linda Roswag, the Canadian dollar exchange rate sucks. Can I pay in maple syrup instead? Mm, John, syrup. maybe you can actually. John, well, I'm pretty sure that stuff is like super valuable. I saw that one documentary. It's, it's so sure. John Murray, Michael Mahovic, super callous, fragile ego, not so expeditious justice. <laughs> nice. Flumble, <laughs> Ashley Beasley, Maddie Mickham, Mutandis Mutatus. JLR, Doggo Attorney at Pop, representing you pro bono. <laughs> Adam Harris, Nathan Hope, OA was the best thing I ever copied from you. <laughs> what? Christopher Wessler, and Anna Elizabeth Adams, uh, Eutychus, Nathan Brocker, and Deborah Moss. Wow, thank you, folks. I hope you enjoy the lot awful movies coming at you very soon, and I hope you retroactively uh, enjoyed the Q&A that happened the other day and all the good stuff, the bonus episodes. Thank you so much for hopping on board. We love you guys. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. Okay, time to find out if you're allowed to tap an injured woman on the back or something. What's the TTTBE? Yeah. <laughs> super short TTTBE. Uh, you thought super straightforward and easy. This was a uh, woman's on the bus. She leaves a package behind. Guy behind her taps her very gently on the back and says, hey, you uh, forgot your package. Uh, but unbeknownst to him, she had just had back surgery. It was super painful. She twists and then uh, sues to recover uh, for the injury is she likely to prevail? You immediately said, I don't want to live in a world in which she can prevail. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and discarded answers C and D. 
good elimination. All we right. don't live in that world. You cannot prevail when there's something weird and unbeknownst to anyone that else about very, you. That sounded very Gandalfian. You cannot prevail. <laughs> so the only question is, is, is her recovery barred for A, because uh, which was your answer? No, because she is presumed to have consented to the ordinary context of daily life. Or B, no, because she was not put in apprehension That's by the touching. stupid B, isn't it? No, it is in fact a. Oh, good. Okay. You got Whew. it right. Congratulations. the 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 question here are the elements of the uh, tort here, and that is: um, is it an assault? Is it a battery? Is it just negligence? Um, the element of assault is that you must uh, be put in apprehension. Um, mm. but, uh, but that is not dispositive oh, right. for all potential right, right, right. theories of recovery, right? Like this could very easily be a negligence claim. Uh, and, um, what is dispositive oh. of all of those is that the, that you in your everyday life, uh, have just consented to these sorts of ordinary contacts. So congratulations. Nice job. I, I suspect a lot of our lawyers will have uh, gotten this wrong and fallen for the attractive distractor, but uh, <laughs> but not you, Thomas. Lawyers, am I that. right? Those, those <laughs> dummies. No, sometimes life hands you an easy uh, bar question and you make easy bar question aid. That's that's what I go. When it seems obvious, take the chance. Sometimes, a lot yeah. of times it is. Um, there okay. you go. Cool. One for one. <laughs> one question streak. Uh, I'm very excited. Hey, hop in your limited-use time machine and tell us who got the answer right this week. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. All right, Thomas, this week's winner is Dan S. on Twitter, at PokerDan99, who writes, Minor bumping in a crowd is considered an ordinary contact of daily life and falls under the defense of presumed consent. I think a light tap on the back qualifies as this. A, all the way, baby. Well, loved your uh, Dickie V shout out there in the middle of uh, March Madness, and um, also as a... A uh, poker player. Uh, that's uh, that's two additional things in uh, Poker Dan's favor. In addition to, of course, getting the answer correct. So, uh, congratulations on being this week's winner. And everyone, give at Poker Dan ninety nine a follow on Twitter. And congratulations. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you on Friday for another rapid response. See you then. You betray the law. This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Opening Arguments is produced with the assistance of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, our production assistant, Ashley Smith, and our researcher, Deborah Smith.
Special thanks to Teresa Gomez and the entire OA Wiki team. Follow them at, at OA Wiki. And a big thank you to our Facebook group moderators, Alicia Cook, Natalie Newell, Emily Waters, Eric Brewer, and Brian. Check out the Opening Arguments Facebook community. And finally, thanks to Thomas Smith for creating the show's theme song, which is used with permission.